Morning, everyone. If you could uh, join me I'm reading our passage today on the screen. All right, today's reading is from Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 9. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? All right. So we pray. Lord, we love how your word gives us uh, perspective and it helps us to, to see life properly through the lens of the truth. And, uh, and so I pray that this morning that our hearts and minds would be illuminated by the scriptures. So we invite the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you come and teach us, unfold the scriptures to us, help us to make sense of what's happening in our world, what it means to each of our lives, uh, whom you have called to live at this time for such a time as this. And so speak to us, Lord, for those who are walking with you, and have the joy of the Lord, oh God, will you continue to fan that flame ever brighter. Lord, for those who are maybe feeling like their flame has turned into a smoldering wick, Lord, would you gently, Lord, just bring that back, Lord. And for those who maybe have never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your son, that today would be their day to give their lives to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're, uh, we're eight days out from the evil Hamas attack upon Israel and the, the, the gruesome, sick, cowardly nature of that attack has kind of shocked the world, at least to a certain degree, and now, Israel is in the process of executing war upon Hamas. And this past week, in many cities, including in our country, we had protests going on uh, and people protesting, not Hamas's slaughter of civilian men, women, children, and babies, but rather Israel's so-called occupation of the land. And they claim that the Israeli government has imposed apartheid upon, upon them. And they claim that Israeli policies are to blame for what has happened, for what Hamas has done, for this sick, demonic uh, violence that happened against Israel. And so there are, there are many protesters even denying that these things have happened, which is bizarre, like, like Holocaust deniers, right? That's a thing. There's people who, who deny that the Holocaust ever happened. But this is perhaps even worse because the Nazis, they, they did their best to hide their atrocities from the world. Hamas, however, doesn't want to hide them. They're showing everybody, this is who we are. This is what we're about. They film it on their phones, and yet people still deny that it's happened. So the, the capacity of the human heart to be deceived, it really knows no bounds. So this morning, we're, we're going to take a short break from Nehemiah, and instead, we're going to spend our time in the Word. We're going to try and get some clarity about the recent, recent developments in Israel and, and, and how we should think about it. How should we as Christians think about war and killing, humans killing other human beings? 
uh, is there such a thing as just war and just killing? Uh, how do we square this with commands to love our enemies and turn the other cheek and all those kinds of things? How do we uh, know who or what we should be rooting for in a, in a war like this? Uh, is there a moral high ground? And time permitting, we'll, we'll end our time in the word answering the question, is it possible that these events um, are leading us to the end of the age and to the return of Jesus Christ? And so, is Ezekiel 38 being fulfilled in front of our eyes? Now, some of you who are fluent in prophecy, you know, you know the reference. Others of you who are newer to Christianity, newer to Jesus and the Bible, um, you, that probably doesn't ring a bell for you. That's okay. Uh, Reminds me of the guy that got bugged by someone at work. They, they laughed at him because he didn't know what the word apocalypse meant. And so it bothered him that they, they sort of made fun of him. But he comforted himself by thinking, hey, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> oh, snuck in a dad joke. As we go into a heavy subject. So... It's not the end of the world that you aren't fluent in the prophetic scripture at this point. Um, it's a journey that we are on with Jesus to learn scripture and all of that. But prophecy is a vital part of the scriptural canon, a, vi a vital part of the Bible. Prophecy is, is a picture window into the future given to us by the only one who knows it. And, and he's given us this, like, look through this window and you can see what is going to happen. And so prophecy gives us confidence in the future because the one who holds the future reveals it to us ahead of time. Isaiah 46, 8 says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. So God says, hey, recall that. Remember this. Like a lot. Recall it to mind. Like I am the only God. I, I know the end from the beginning. I see the whole thing. And I am accomplishing all my purposes right now on planet Earth, in the Middle East, in China, in the South Pacific, in the United States. I am accomplishing all my purposes. No one will stop me because no one can stop me. Not only does prophecy give us confidence in the future, it motivates us in the present. John said in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, right now. If you're a Christian, you are God's child. If you're not, if you haven't come to Christ by faith, you're not God's child right now. And I, I, I don't mean to be harsh, this is just Bible. You're a child of the devil. We all were at one point until we came to Christ and were born again into his family. So, but what we will be has not yet appeared. We don't, we don't, it, we don't know what, what this is going to give, this mortal body when it gives way to immortality. We don't know exactly, but we know, here's what we know, that when he appears, meaning Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes this or hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who is looking forward to the prophetic declaration that Jesus is coming again and all the things that, you know, that accompany the coming of Jesus, we, we purify ourselves. When, when the Bible uses the word hope, it's not like we use hope. In the Bible, hope is confident expectation. Confident expectation. Our confident expectation is that one day we will look into the eyes of Jesus and in that moment we will be liberated and transformed. 
liberated from sin and death, transformed into the image of the one who made us, who loves us, who died for us. And in that day, our joy, which is now partial, will be full. In that day, pleasure will be pure and unending, unlike it is now, which is tainted and oftentimes polluted and, and all the rest. David wrote this, Psalm 1611, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Who's the author of pleasure? That would be God. Who's the perverter of pleasure? <laughs> that would be Satan. The hope that we have is sure, it's confident, and that impacts the way we live. Listen, if you hired, say you have a business and, and you need two workers uh, to work for you for a year, and you hire these two people and you say to one, work for me for a year, at the end of the year, I'm gonna pay you 20 grand. Woohoo! The other guy, you say, you work for me for a year, I'm gonna pay you $20 million. I'm guessing the first guy making 20 grand might have some attitude issues at work. What do you think? And I'm guessing the second guy is going to be whistling on his way to work. Those who have confident expectation, biblical hope in the future as God has revealed it to us in Scripture, in prophecy, purify ourselves as he is pure. We keep on track, we don't lose the plot. We keep moving in the right direction in life. We don't descend into the leads, weeds of, of low level living where everyone, everything is murmuring and complaining and just you know, polluted. Our speech becomes salted with joy and peppered with gratitude and even when, when faced with prophecy revealing difficult times for earth up ahead, which there will be, they don't depress us. Those prophecies don't depress us. They serve to remind us that our life is hid with Christ, who is our life. He is our life. And the world is passing away, and we need to remember that, that this world is a temporary situation. So the prophetic word, it situates us properly in the world, and we need it. Well. It sure does feel like there's been a major shift in the world in the last week, doesn't it? Um, you know, I've, I've framed our study this morning just with a few questions, and uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ask the questions and then attempt to answer them from the Bible, and hopefully we'll kind of hit some of the things that have been rolling around in your heart and mind as you've wrestled with these issues uh, as they've unfolded. So the first question is, is war ever justified? Is war ever justified? So Solomon, waxing eloquent about, uh, eloquent about life on a fallen planet, Ecclesiastes 3.1, every, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So he's saying, okay, this is life on a fallen planet is going to consist of these ebbs and flows, these seasons, these things that are going to happen. They're going to come and go. It's a part of the deal. And in verse 3, he says, there is a time to kill. Time to kill. It's not the word murder, by the way. There's two different words in Hebrew. One is murder, and that's a, you know, a individual uh, you know, taking the life of another out of vengeance, out of whatever, for whatever reason. Killing is associated with judicial killing, the right of the government, which we'll talk about in a second. And then in verse 8, he says that life on earth, there is a time for war. There is a time for war. Solomon very realistically declares that life on a fallen planet will necessarily, it, this, this is necessary, not saying good or bad, but necessary. There's a time to kill and there is a time for war. So these, these harsh and, and kind of unseemly things are a necessary feature on a planet that where evil, if it's left unrestrained, would destroy us all. So Romans 13, four says this, Listen to this, he, meaning the magistrate or the government, is God's servant 
for your good. Now, it's not saying that everybody in government and the king, that they're all Christians. Not saying that. But that the entity of civil magistrated government, that's God's idea. So if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, so there is place for God's wrath to be demonstrated within the civil government, within government who bears the sword. So in Romans 13, Paul states that the, the government has been given a weapon with which to punish wrongdoers. Paul simply calls it the sword, but it means that God has given rulers power to punish evil with the use of force, even capital force, meaning the use of death as punishment. Now, obviously, governments can misuse and have misused this power, right? It's happening in the world even now. But God gave it to them nonetheless. This power includes killing, as, as in capital punishment, or deadly force in, in uh, stopping a crime and so on. Those who are commissioned by government to protect and serve, they have the ability within whatever rules they've been given to, take an, to kill another human being judiciously. It was a Christian, interestingly, living in the fourth century, who put forth what he called just war theory. Augustine, Saint Augustine, who was a pretty wild youngster, but he became a very deep and clear thinker later on in life. And he argued from the Bible that some wars are justified and Christians may and often should bear arms in these wars. And on the other hand, there are other wars that are not just, they are unjustified, and Christians must oppose these wars. Now what's the difference between a just and an unjust war? Well, Augustine basically says that a just war is a defensive war. It's a government protecting its people from an aggressor. It's right and proper for the magistrate, for the government, to call its citizens, including Christians, to help defend its borders and its citizens from aggressors that are attacking. On the other hand, Christians should oppose wars of aggression where their country is the aggressor because they are typically based on nothing more than, than greed, uh, malice, and so on. Now, not always easy to discern those things, right? But war has been and will be a necessary part of life on earth until Jesus returns. Who, by the way, when Jesus returns, Revelation 19 says he comes to make war. So Jesus acknowledged the reality and the inevitability of wars and killing on, on numerous occasions. When, when Jesus was asked, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? In Matthew 24, 6, he said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. Not might, but must. War is inevitable in this life. It was a common occurrence in that day, in the first century. Everyone was familiar with war, and they had been for thousands of years before that. Jesus said in Luke 14, 31, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's, uh, he is able to, with 10,000, meet him who comes against him with 20,000? So, in other words, you know, what king hasn't at least read, you know, War for Dummies and, and figured out that, that, you know, before I go to war, I need to make sure that, that at the very least that my guys will be able to stand their ground, that they won't give up ground to the enemy. Are we able to do that? 
And that's, that's the base level if we're going to go to war. So the question, is Israel justified in going to war against Hamas and the Palestinian peoples that occupy the Gaza and so on? Well, based upon Romans 13, I would argue that they not only have a right to declare war against Hamas, but they have a duty. They have a duty. When faced with an existential threat to its citizens, uh, a righteous government is given the power of the sword by God to protect its citizens. So yes, Israel has a right and a duty to protect its people by going to, war, to, going to war with Hamas. In my mind, it's not, it's not a question. Well, second, second question. Is there moral equivalence between what Israel has done and what Hamas has done, or what Israel is doing and what Hamas has done. There will be civilian casualties in this war, without a doubt. There's already been civilian casualties. There always are in war. It's part of the, the horrible cost. And that should that should sadden us. We should be saddened for the Palestinian peoples who are not a part of Hamas. We have Christian brothers and sisters over there that are there to reach the Palestinian people. We, we've met missionaries that are in the West Bank and go into Gaza to share the gospel. Their lives are in danger. Innocence will die. There have been over 10,000 civilian casualties in the Russia-Ukraine war to date, 10,000. In the course of the 20 years that we were in Afghanistan, there were over 46,000 civilian casualties. In the Iraqi war, it is estimated upwards of 300,000 civilian casualties were part of that war. So the death of innocence is a ugly reality of war. But no one ever that we know of has gone to greater lengths to limit civilian casualties than Israel. And so they have been, this past week, they have been messaging the Palestinian people via text on their phones, via leaflets being dropped into the air to drop into the Gaza, and the citizens were being told where they could go, where they could find safety, and be out of reach of the various bombs and so on that were going to be flying in uh, to the Gaza. Israel, for... Oh, going on a couple of decades now, they have dropped knock bombs on buildings. Knock, it's basically a knock on the building that says to the civilians in the building, hey, we're going to be bombing this place shortly. Leave. We don't want you to die. But there are terrorists embedded in this building, and we are going to bomb it, so please leave. This is your warning. Who does that? Nobody, only Israel. Contrast that with Hamas, who not only didn't try to minimize civilian casualties, civilians were the target. That's who they were trying to kill. And not just men, but it was women, it was children, it was babies. They raped the women, they, they desecrated the bodies, they chopped off heads, they did all this sick stuff. Listen, he, a lot of you know this, but you may not. Hamas is a proxy for Iran. Iran, in the Bible, is Persia. And so, 
Iran supports Hamas, funds Hamas, gives Hamas its cues and its directions. The same is true of Hezbollah in the north on the southern border of Lebanon, where they have 100 to 150,000 rockets aimed in at Israel. Iran is the one pulling the strings of these two terrorist organizations. Iran calls Israel the little Satan. And Iran calls the United States the great Satan. And they, Iran, meaning the Iranian government, would like all Jews to be dead and gone from the land. And they chant death to America on a regular basis. That is who they are, that is what they think, and what they believe. So, Hamas shares the goal. The, they only want the land that Israel currently occupies if the Jews are dead and gone from the land. There's never been the possibility for a two-state solution. It's never, because you don't, you don't have a willing partner in the, in the negotiations. Okay, here's, here's our, our one requirement, says Hamas and the PLO, is we just want uh, the Jews dead and Israel gone. There, we'll sign anything if you meet that criteria. Well, there's no negotiation then. Listen, it's stated. They don't hide this. It, it's funny how the, we in the West, and especially our media, they have a hard time. They don't, they, they just, I don't think they think that other parts of the world think differently than we do in the West. But they state it. Here's a couple of excerpts from the Hamas Covenant. Goals of Hamas, quote, the Islamic resistance movement is a distinguished Palestinian movement whose allegiance is to Allah and whose way of life is Islam. It strives to raise the banner of Allah over every inch of Palestine. Israel will exist and will continue to exist under Islam uh, until Islam, rather, will obliterate it just as it obliterated others before it. So that's not, that's not some random quote from somewhere. That is, under, that is in their charter. That is why they exist. And so when you see what we saw this last week, they're not acting out of character or out of line with their mission. That is who they are. That's what they are desiring to do. They don't hide their intentions, they say who they are, and they back it up with their actions. Shortly after their escape from Egypt, God's people were marching into the wilderness, um, and they were attacked by the Amalekites. Some of you probably remember this story out of Exodus. And this attack was, was unique in many ways uh, in that it wasn't the attack of an enemy army against another army. It was a, an attack upon the weak and the defenseless. We get this detail from Deuteronomy 25, 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, meaning the, the back, they came to the back of the procession to those who were lagging behind and he did not fear God. So the Amalekites didn't fight like men by going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the fighting men of Israel. They attacked like terrorist cowards would by going after the people in the back, the women, the children, the elderly, the feeble, the sick, the weak. It's despicable 
It's disgusting, it's pathetic. So much so that God told Moses in Exodus 17, 14, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This is, this is so heinous and so sick to go in and attack the weak, the powerless, the defenseless, the women, the children, the elderly, God says. I'm gonna wipe this people off the face of the earth through you, Moses. The Amalekites were ancient terrorists who specialized in attacking the weak. Even when the Amalekite raiders raided Ziklag, when, when David and his men were, were marching with the Philistines to fight Saul, they, they attacked when it was only women and children who were left. There's a spirit behind this kind of sick, cowardly behavior. The Amalekites weren't just cruel. They were, they, they were the inverse. They were the, the kind of the photo negative of Israel. Again and again in the Old Testament, you, you have the Lord instructing Israel, care for the orphans, the widows, the strangers, and other vulnerable people. I mean, it's just all over. Even at Mount Ebal and Gerizim, Israel pronounces a curse against anyone who perverts the, just, uh, the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, and so on. That, that, it's just the Old Testament is full of those kinds of directives to Israel. And so those who say Israel provoked this attack by creating an apartheid state and prison-like conditions for those in Gaza, they just don't know what they're talking about. With all due respect, the Palestinians were given the Gaza Strip back in 2005. Here, it's yours. A beautiful piece of land. Coastline, Mediterranean coastline, beach. I mean, they could have built beautiful hotels and developed that property. It could have been just this resort section in Israel. But in 2006, they elected Hamas to be their ruling authority. And shortly thereafter, a year later, Hamas was shooting rockets into Israel from the Gaza. And Israel had to take action now to, to limit the travel in and out of Gaza because now we got people who are hostile towards us. They've made it known and so on. And so now this, this fence gets built and checkpoints and greater limitations and, and so on and so forth. Listen, everything Israel has done has been in response to hostilities towards them. They haven't been the aggressors in this. They've been the responders. The wicked spirit that, that animated Amalek, I believe, animates Hamas today. Well, we gotta, we gotta keep moving. Let me, let me just do one, because I know, especially you prophecy guys and gals wanna, want me to deal with this. Are we coming to the end of the age? So, there, there are prophetic implications to what is happening. Um, so, so let me, let me just kind of paint a, a picture, sort of an overview picture of what happens in Ezekiel 36 through 38. In Ezekiel 36 and 37, you have, um, Israel being regathered to the land that was promised to Abram and his descendants, but not only do those chapters predict a physical regathering, which happened, right, in pretty recent history, which is phenomenal, it's miraculous, really. 
So, so it predicts this physical regathering uh, towards the end of the age. It also predicts an embracing of the Messiah by the Jewish people. Now, some of you are going, well, wait, that hasn't happened. They've regathered, but they haven't embraced, embraced Messiah. Well, let me just read a couple verses here so you, so you know what this sounds like. Ezekiel 36, 24, I will take you from the nations and then gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and so on. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna gather you from countries all over the world and bring you back into the land of promise. And then after that, I'm gonna cleanse you of all your sin, of all your uncleanness, of all your idolatry, and then my spirit is gonna indwell you. It's interesting that in the next chapter, Ezekiel 37, God shows Ezekiel a valley full of bones, dry bones. And God says, hey, Ezekiel, can, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel, really smart answer, says, you know. <laughs> Ezekiel's like, I don't know, but you do. And God says, prophesy over those bones. And Ezekiel did. He prophesied and as he prophesied, those bones began to move. They began to connect. They began clicking and clacking and coming together to form humans. The bones all came together. Then skin and flesh covered the skeletons, but there was still no breath. There was still no breath in the human shape, in the bones that had come together, in the, the sinew and flesh that had covered the bones. No breath. That's where we are today. The Jews have been gathered from the nations. Beginning at the end of the 19th century and going on through the 20th century till 1948 when they were officially declared a nation, the Jews have been making aliyah. They've been going up to their homeland, returning to their homeland. And the bones have come together. The flesh and the sinew have been placed over the bones. But Israel as a whole still rejects her Messiah. The breath of God has not been breathed into them yet. 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 That day is coming. Romans 11, verse 25. Gentile, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this day, in this day, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer, meaning Jesus, will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So the day is coming when Israel's Messiah returns. When Jesus returns at his second coming, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And the Bible says in Zechariah 12, verse 10, they will mourn. As, they were, as if they were mourning for their only son. You can imagine that kind of grief. They're gonna see Jesus with piercings in his hand at the second coming, and they're gonna sob and wail and be overcome with grief because you're our son. You're one of us. 
and we rejected you. And in that moment, they will be reconciled, just like Joseph was reconciled to his brothers in Egypt. He took off all the, you know, the makeup and the mascara, like, oh, and they thought they were in for it, his brothers did. Instead, Joseph says, come here, you knuckleheads. And they all did a giant group hug. Before that happens, there is one prophetic passage that commands our attention, and we'll close here. Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel 38. 36 and 37 have the regathering of Israel, the forming of the nation, but without breath yet. Ezekiel 38 reveals that in the days leading up to the return of Messiah, an alliance of people, an alliance of nations will come together, and this alliance of about seven nations, all Middle Eastern nations, will be led by Persia. Who is Persia? Iran. And Magog. Who is Magog, you prophecy buffs? More than likely, Russia. And so the furthest north, there's a scripture that says they're to the furthest north. You go straight north from Israel, you get to Russia. So there will be an alliance between Persia and Russia, Iran and Russia. Now, fascinating, though Persia, and Iran and Russia have, you know, sort of played footsies a little bit in, in decades past, there's been nothing like the alliance that we have right now. Nothing like it. In fact, our intelligence is saying that Russia is in on all of this to one degree or another. And they are in cahoots. And so what is going to happen with this alliance of nations is that uh, Ezekiel 38, right around verse 3, says that God will put a hook in their, God will put a hook in their jaw and will bring them down into Israel. So right, right now, Iran doesn't want into Israel. It's got a couple of dummy terrorist groups that they can just use and they don't care how many of those people die. They want them to die. The more, the more of those people that die, the better. Because that's just PR fodder, right? Because the West will swallow it and, and believe that Israel's a bad guy. You watch what will happen as public opinion begins to shift. But God will put a hook in their jaw and they will be drawn to Israel to take a spoil. We don't know what the spoil is. They'll be drawn to take a spoil, and long story short, because I gotta make it short at this point, is that God will, through it appears natural, and perhaps, um, you know, human effort as well, will destroy five-sixths of this army, and they will be defeated. Now, this is, this is a famous prophetic passage, and it is also famously hard to pin down the timing of. Okay, so the only thing that we can say with any kind of confidence is that this is going to happen before the second coming of Jesus. Could it happen before the rapture of the church? I say yes. Could it happen right now? I say yes, but with a caveat. Right now, Israel is living in a land that has walls in it. And there's a little clue for you prophecy nerds, there's a few of you uh, like me out there, where it says they will come down into a land of unwalled villages. So, you know, those kind of details are usually not insignificant. So there's a part of me that goes, you know what, you've got the West Bank wall, You've got the Gaza fence slash wall, and I'm going, eh, I don't know, I don't know. Maybe there needs to be some further development and so on where, where Israel gets a sense of peace and safety before Ezekiel 38 happens. But right now, Iran and Russia are together. They are in alliance. 
The other nations, Turkey, they are allied. Uh, and some of the ones we're not positive about, some say Germany, others say, uh, oh, I forget the other one. But at any rate, we are living, folks, in times that I believe are, at the very least, forming before us. And as we started out this morning, ought to, ought to help situate us in this world that we're in and know that this world is not our home and that the time is short. And so what manner of people ought we to be, knowing what we know? God's given us a picture window to look into the future. Okay, we know what's coming. So how should that impact my life? How should that impact the decisions I make? If you're not a Christian here this morning, how should that impact you? Let me give you a hint. You should become a Christian. You should become a follower of Jesus. That's what that should do. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. And um, listen, if there's stuff in your life that you've been wrestling with or stuff that you're not proud of or whatever, man, let, let the hope that we have, the confident expectation, let that purify you. Go, man, I'm not going to, I don't want to mess around with this stuff anymore, you know, or my foul mouth. I'm sick of having a foul mouth. Or... or you know, whatever it might be, whatever the th thing is, that you just go, ah, maybe God would have me surrender this this morning and just move me a little bit forward in the direction that we're going. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you see the end from the beginning and your, your counsel will stand. You are working out all things according to the counsel of your will. And so we as your people, Lord, we take great comfort from that. Lord, we take great comfort that we are in the palm of your hand and no one can pluck us out of it. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ, neither height nor depth, uh, death nor life. Uh, suffering, tribulation, anything that life on earth can throw at it, none of it can separate us from you. There's, there's nothing, there's no demon or devil that could separate us from you and from the love that you have shown us through Christ. So we have every reason, Lord, to be confident of what's ahead and confident, Lord, that you're gonna meet our needs out of your riches and glory in this life, however many years you might grant us. So, Lord, together we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, like Psalm 122 says to do. We pray, God, uh, for mercy. We pray that you would protect, protect civilians in the Gaza and in Israel. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way. And we know that war is an ugly, harsh reality of life on a fallen planet. But Lord, we pray for mercy in the midst of that harsh reality. We pray for the salvation of the Palestinian people and even for those of Hamas. God, you have been merciful to us, sinners who have deserved death and hell. And so there but for the grace of God go we. Lord, we pray for the salvation of the Jews, Lord your Old Testament people, the Jews, whom you have promised will one day be reconciled to their Messiah. Lord, would that many would come now before the second coming, before the tribulation. Thank you, Lord, that you have missionaries in Israel all over the place sharing the gospel of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, would you put a fire in us to share the gospel with the people around us. Lord, maybe we've lost that evangelistic edge that we once had, where we just so desire to see the people in our lives, in our families, in our workplace, in our schools, to come to know you. God, take away any, any sort of shame that we have or insecurity about talking to others about Jesus and the cross 
and the incredible things that you've done for us to reconcile us to yourself and to talk to them about the future of this world and the glorious future for all those who put their faith and trust in Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you are a person wanting to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you, I wanna ask you to raise your hand right now. You just need to know Jesus paid for you upon the cross, your sins, no matter what you've done, no matter what kind of life you've lived, no matter what you've believed or not believed, God bless you, sir. And, and so you come just as you are. You don't, you don't sort out your life and get ready, work your way up to following Jesus. Nope, doesn't work like that. You come just the way you are and you trust him. It's almost like letting go of the trapeze. You let go of your life, and you let the Lord take it. He died for you on the cross, he rose from the dead, and if you trust him, profess him as your Lord and Savior, you'll be saved, the Bible says. If that's you, raise up your hand, and in a moment we'll pray. Yes, sir, God bless you. God bless you back here. Anyone else? God bless you back here. I see your hand as well. God bless you way in the back there. Got you. Listen, the Lord doesn't, you know, doesn't promise you an easy go of it in life. He just promises that he's with you every step of the way and he'll bring you home when this thing is done. Safely guaranteed. Anyone else? All right. God bless all of you who raised your hand. I want you all who raised your hand to pray this prayer right where you're seated and just pray it out loud right where you're at. And so say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you, that you are the Messiah, the Savior of the world who died on the cross for me and rose from the dead. Please come into my life, wash away all my sin, be my Lord and my Savior. I give you my life. In your name I pray, amen, amen.